It's that thing that allows for the creation of a Negro spiritual. Um, something that says, I'm no ways tired. You know the singers of that song were bone tired. It's drawing on a history that they can't tell you what they know and lives in their bones. So when I speak of Black joy, it's not toxic positivity that dismisses the sorrow or the trauma. It's the life force that allows you to withstand those things and emerge triumphantly. Andrea Billy Walls, founder of the Museum of Black Joy, coming up on The Janice Adams Show. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome. Joining us on the show today is Andrea Billy Walls, a Philadelphia-based artist, photographer, poet, and founder of the Museum of Black Joy, a borderless refuge for the observation, cultivation, celebration, and preservation of Black Joy, a digital installation gift to us all wherever we are. As Philly Walls writes on her homepage, quoting poet-author Lucille Clifton, Come, celebrate with me that every day something has tried to kill me and has failed. I began our interview with a deceptively simple question. What does Black Joy mean to you and why do we need a museum for it? Ooh, Black Joy to me is, I'd say, the most benevolent creative force um, known to me. And I mean that um, I, I don't think of joy as a frivolous emotion. I don't think of it as a thin uh, type of happiness that's fleeting. I think of it as a deeply spiritual experience that can survive, persist, exist in the same experience of sorrow and struggle. It can stay dormant or emerge through anything. And so a glorious experience is heightened with and by joy. A sorrowful experience can be withstood through a relationship with joy. And whether that relationship is something that is actively articulated, I think in the history of um, Black people in this country, and I imagine throughout the diaspora, but this is the context that I uh, am familiar with. It, it, it's that thing that allows for the creation of a Negro spiritual. Something that says, I'm no ways tired. When I think of, uh, you know, that particular spiritual, you know, the singers of that song were bone tired. They have worked, they have had their labor extracted. They have not been the beneficiaries of their labor. And yet they sing No Ways Tired in this way that allows them to continue forward on behalf of their own spirit, on behalf of the future, on behalf of generations. It's, it's drawing on a history that they can't tell you, but they know and lives in their bones and their DNA. So when I speak of Black joy, again, it's not toxic positivity. It's like, oh, 
you know, you'll be okay in, in a way that dismisses the sorrow or the grief or the trauma. It's the life force that allows you to withstand those things and emerge triumphantly. You began your Museum of Black Joy in 2020, or the concept for it, and, and I definitely want to ask you to speak more about that. But my question is, that was a period, and these last years have all been that period, of real terror for Black people, of living through constant trauma. And I remember when my first book of history for adults, Glory Days, came out. And a lot of people were saying to me, well, are you dismissing what we've really been through? Or even if you're not, are you just kind of minimizing it by speaking of us having Glory Days when we have not had really the glory days that we should have had, those were, were stolen from us. So have you gotten some of that sentiment in the idea of calling your museum a museum of Black joy? I haven't gotten much of that. And I feel it's because within these um, last couple of years where we've been so compressed with this media deluge, of negativity and traumatic experience where you could literally open your device and watch a human person murdered in slow motion in front of, whether you've consented to it or not. In many cases, someone will send you a link and it'll start, you know, you will be in the experience before you can consent to the trauma of the day. Yeah. And there Everything was so much and it was global. Exactly. And it, it was. was at the Every expense. Day it was a different one. And it was at the expense of largely black and brown bodies. Um, and, and then um, many assaults against Asians um, compounded that experience. And so I think people were ready to have another channel um, to, to turn to because, because we were isolated inside and didn't have the physical ways that sometimes we expend our, our sorrow, you know, in those ways when you're moving in the world and you can meet at the club and you can dance and you can, um, you know, expel some of the sorrow in those social ways that is at the heart of Black Joy, where you gather even at the funeral um, in a way that celebrates a life um, and in a way that feeds the soul, you know, with the, you know, so-and-so brings the apple cake, so-and-so brings the sweet potato pie, so-and-so brings the, you know, the mac and cheese and the greens. And um, so we, we lost that way of connecting with that center of joy. And, and my whole position in this is that I'm not ignoring the injustice or the people who are working through protest and through um, agitations um, to address and fight for justice. But I feel it's so important that we have a parallel stream, particularly of images that have that give equal time to the experience of the black body engaged in beauty and grace and joy. Because my fear is that over time, the traumatic uh, experience of being imprinted with the black body as a source of trauma no matter what stories or language or jargon we use to resist that, those images get implanted and imprinted on our consciousness in a way that people who have no intimacy with us, that's the story they know and believe. And these are people often who are in the policy-making decisions. And so their whole 
interpretation of a black body is that it is for destruction. So I want to set the result, the, the default for the imagination of the black body to inhabit the experience of joy and grace, creativity. I read somewhere that you said it was really starting to impact my emotional self and became so psychically overwhelming. So I just saw the power of shifting the lens, making a conscious decision to pay attention to joy. And two years into this project, or almost two years into this project now, I was starting to disbelieve my own lived experience based on the preponderance of signals that were coming from the outside world because we were like attached to our devices through a lot of the pandemic. And But every day in my family, we sit down and say grace before every meal. I see my neighbors coming and going to work, holding their children's hands. Uh, I just see the everyday instances. Um, and it's not about celebrity or um, anything spectacular. It's just the everyday kindnesses, courtesies, um, just like within our community. If we lose a member, folks show up with a meal, with a story. Oh, remember that time we you know, and allow us to mitigate our sorrow and our loss with a collective memory uh, of the beautiful times as well. And it's something that if you are intimate within our communities, you know, we don't have to, we don't have to explain it because we are it and we live it. But, you know, creating the museum is about providing evidence in a way, in a place that it can be received and experienced if, if, if you need to be told about it. Mm -hmm. I, I want to talk about the imagery of the museum, but before we get there, I want to ask, you know, the issue that you raised about this preponderance of negativity in, in, in the imagery that we see. And I'm always struck by that because I, I agree with you. Uh, you know, this was just coming at us hot and heavy every day. But the reality was coming hot and heavy every day. And as a person who's spent a lot of time in news, I know how difficult it's been to get colleagues in the media to pay attention to what was coming at us hot and heavy every day. And so the issue is how do we therefore navigate that? And I'll just refer to one story directly. I remember um, uh, it was, this wasn't about black life, but, but in a way talking about something that wasn't specifically black life is makes it even more relatable, I think, to many people who might be listening, which is that it was about uh, an anniversary around AIDS. And an executive producer of a network news morning show made the comment that that was yucky and nobody wanted to hear that with breakfast. So when you have, that's not everybody because others, shows and other stations did commemorate it. But when you have that capacity to be able to ignore suffering and also the healing that that acknowledgement could have brought, how do we navigate that? You know, we navigate it because we need joy workers we need protesters visibly in the street. We need uh, policy savants. We need um, academics to create a framework and bring language to these things that for my generation, we couldn't always name it. We just knew why do we feel so bad and tired and exhausted? Um, we didn't have that word microaggression to be able to 
name that that's what happened to me today. So for me, um, and, and I um, and I get this from listening to Toni Morrison talk about her work as a writer, speaking about like it wasn't her place to be in the street. It was her place to be in that quiet cocoon where she could turn what she knew about, about Black history, Black culture, Black love um, into fiction that would now um, be a guide for all types of creative people. And, you know, a provocative, because you see they're, you know, in the news trying to, to ban her book, Beloved, because it might feel, uh, make a white child feel guilty or bad or grief stricken. So it's interesting the way these narratives change over time. But I, I just decided that this is my work. This is what I can do. I have a camera. I have an intimacy with the community that, uh, and I'm a witness and a beneficiary of Black joy in the community. I grew up in the 60s and the 70s when uh, neighborhoods were largely segregated, but also largely intact, or at least they had the gamut, they had a true diversity. Um, because of segregation, you had your Black doctor, um, you had your Black teachers, you had, you know, you had your pimps and your hustlers and you had, but you had the whole gamut. Full society. I, I know one time my, my aunt said to me, I wonder if you know, do you know who that man was who used to speak to you and your cousin every morning and wave every morning? And I said, okay, I'll bite. You know, no, I don't. I don't even, you're talking about something when we were four years old. So no, I kind of don't remember. She said, well, it was Langston Hughes. Oh and <laughs> because he, the apartment that our grandparents lived in, 2041 Fifth Avenue in New York City at corner of 126th Street, he lived a block away. And he was, he loved children. So when we were coming to and fro with our grandmother, you know, he would speak to us and all of that if he was outside. And there's also, it's, it's just because now this gives me a chance to pick up on the theme and share a moment of Black joy. He, there was a, an elementary school, PS24, near his house. And the children would be heard about this famous man who lived at this particular house and they were trampling the flowers that Langston Hughes and his gardener, Mr. Sacred Heart, which was his name, um, were planting. And every day they would kind of come in to see if they could get a peek at this famous man, but they didn't know who he was and why he was. They just knew they should try to see who he was. And the flowers were absolutely trampled. And um, Hughes got an idea. He and Mr. Sacred Heart went to the nursery. They invited the children to plant their own flowers and they put their names on each one. So every day the children would then stop by to talk to him and Mr. Sacred Heart and check on their flowers and tend their flowers. and. Everybody was happy, including the flowers. And there, there was a picture of, in the New York Times, Langston Hughes and his garden of children. It became a, a famous picture. So how does your garden grow, Andrea, Andrea Philly Walls? Tell us about the first image that we see when we go to the Museum of Black Joy. Uh, I, I think uh, that first row of, of images is, um, you know, two uh, church parishioners holding hands uh, with a bit of bling, you know, um, in the foreground, and then the circle of hands for a church gathering at New River Presbyterian Church, which is my mother's church. 
And, you know, for me, I consider myself to be culturally Christian. I was raised um, within the embrace of, of the good word. And, um, you know, just that memory of holding hands and sending a pulse of peace around a, a circle, you know, one hand to give, one hand to receive, peace be with you, um, and also with you. You know, to me, that kind of sums up the joy, like you have to give and share it as well as receive it graciously and with gratitude in order to, you know, have it resonate and resound, you know, as a force uh, to be used. And so and I think whatever wherever you are um, in terms of religion, the black church is undeniable as a source and keeper of um, spirit and joy and possibility. And um, it's undoubtedly, you know, that ladder and those shoulders uh, upon which we climb. I, I think uh, the other photo was the last night of summer in 2019, when we had no idea what was coming for us in the, the new year. And it's just um, two couples holding hands, uh, skating at the river rink in Philadelphia with the lights uh, behind them. And I just have such fond memories of roller skating and you know, waiting for couples skate and, you know, is some is the person you want to ask you to skate going to ask you or are you going to have to do that math and, and skate with the first person who asked you, even though it's not the one that you were looking and hoping to, you know, so all of that romance and youthful anticipation. And, and joy, you know, the, the moving of the body, the joy for those of us who have the privilege of uh, more or less able bodies, you know, there's something to me that is very embodied. Um, it's the dance floor. It's the skating rink. You know, it's the, the stoop, you know. Um, so it, it, it for me has a, a lot of physicality to it. And memory, and then the third image of is of Ramona Africa with her fist raised. It, it was her celebration of life, a birthday party. The first time I had seen her out uh, in a long time because she has not been well. Uh, for me, it just signifies the true uh, story of endurance for anyone who knows that story. More with our guest. Andrea Philly Walls here on the Janice Adams Show after the break. Janice Adams show with my guest today, Andrea Philly Wall. She is the creator of the Museum of Black Joy. And I'll be putting a link to that museum uh, with some of the images that we've talked about today on my website so you can check them. Andrea, we talked about this amazing museum that you've created. Right now, it's a digital museum. You created it with an image a day that you posted yourself. But before you did that, you were a poet. How does the poetry relate to this? Do you bring your poetry into, into the museum as well? I, I haven't as yet, and it's um, kind of interesting to me. It, my poetry has been mostly embedded in my work around the uh, May 13th, 1985 um, bombing of 6221 Osage Avenue um, in Philadelphia, which is the neighborhood I grew up in. 
the move bombing, the historic move bombing. And and I would like you to give the audience, for those who don't know, a little bit of background about that. It, it's so it's so huge. It's hard to um, kind of sum it up. But ultimately, in response to a radical, forward-thinking, revolutionary group, so-called revolutionary group, uh, their um, advocacy to have members of their organization freed from prison led to an altercation with the city in which the city of Philadelphia brought a explosive uh, into a neighborhood, working class neighborhood where I grew up uh, on a state uh, provided helicopter dropped that bomb into the home, a row home, a row home, which means it was connected to all the other houses on the block. Women, children, and men were known to be inside. Uh, once the bomb was dropped, although the Philadelphia Fire Department was on scene, they decided not to fight the fire for over an hour which allowed uh, the entire neighborhood to be really destroyed. 60 homes burned to the ground, 250 uh, men, women, and children. Citizens um, became displaced. Uh, 11 humans were, were murdered that day, including five children. You know, and it's the neighborhood that I was speaking earlier about um, having such fond memories of playing every kind of game in the streets, feeling safe, being known even by people that I didn't know. They knew my dad. I, I could be anywhere in the neighborhood and um, people knew who I was. And so I, there was a protection in that, a safety and a care. And so it's the literal dividing line. I was 21 um, in that year. Uh, so it's the literal dividing line between my childhood and my the loss of innocence in, in every sense of the word. And so much of my poetry is has been a two-decade-long process of meditating on that experience, trying to understand how it happened, why it happened, why nobody said, oh, wait, hold up, stop. <laughs> you know, we're trying to serve some misdemeanor warrants here around some... They said there was garbage in, on the lawn. I, I remember, you know, hearing that, that there was excessive garbage on the lawn. And those were the kinds of things that were the justification to come in with a helicopter with a bomb and bomb a Black neighborhood. And there were no lawns. Like these were, you know, these were row homes, you know, and there are questions about composting and um, it being unfamiliar and perhaps not done in, you know, nobody had the compost barrel with the worms and the, you know, so there were some philosophical challenges between the neighbors um, and members of MOVE. Um, but there are challenges amongst neighbors wherever you go, <laughs> you know. The, the question I sought to answer is like, how, why, how can this be? And in full view of the entire world and the only consequences were those, Ramona Africa went to jail for seven years. Um, Having survived for what I, I believe the charge was rioting when she was uh, enclosed within this inferno, and so you know, for me, I will also excuse me. I will also put a link to the move bombing uh, story, and I have a, on the website so that people can follow. I have another website called the Black Body Curve that links to my manuscript of poetries, and it's got all of the historical context um, that uh, that I could offer. We'll add that link then with your permission. Thank you. Um, and so the poetry was just about trying to rectify my own humanity for myself, because it's not something that most Philadelphians want to talk about. And we understand, like, who wants to be present with the fact that you are so easily uh, annihilated in view 
um, of the world with no um, recompense. Mm -hmm. And total impunity. Um, Where were you that day? As a matter of fact, I was in Boston. My mother was at home alone. Um, I was in um, school in Boston. My brothers are both uh, Navy veterans. And so they were both, I, I believe, deployed at that time. So my mom was home alone. And I remember seeing the news and just being kind of stunned because we weren't as media I don't know if the word is savvy, but we weren't connected to media in the same way then. Well, to see your neighborhood go up in flames. Honestly, it didn't become traumatic until later. Watching it somehow, it it was kind of like the nine, like what's happened. It was hard to, I couldn't make sense of it. And so my poetic response and the website that I, um, which actually kind of led to my visual arts practice. Um, was just a way to try to um, humanize myself and others in understanding that experience, which in some ways led to the Museum of Black Joy, because in my my deep research around, you know, all the things that led to that, including the enslavement of African people, um, because, you know, these things happened in a chronology. It didn't just happen that you bombed some Black people and let a black neighborhood burn to the ground. And and it's something that with 2021 being the centennial of Tulsa, it, it's also interesting. We talked about the centennial of Tulsa, and that was heavily marketed, which is what happened. The victims, the descendants of the victims have yet to be compensated. All the money that was raised to commemorate Tulsa 100, a city that also dropped bombs on its black citizens. Very early planes were used for that reason, to drop bombs on black people who were fleeing white terrorists who were just totally rampaging their neighborhood under the guise that a white uh, woman elevator operator was touched by a black man. And then from there, all hell broke broke loose because of the lies that had been told previous to that and led up to it, which is why it should be a cautionary tale for the lies being told now. But it's interesting that when that commemoration took place, or or when MOVE took place, when when the bombing of MOVE took place, it had been erased from people's minds and consciousness that it had happened in Tulsa. And when the commemoration of Tulsa takes place, it what's erased from memory is the red summer of 1919, just two years before Tulsa. And all of that, what is part of the erasure, is the systemic brutality that was used to commit genocide against indigenous peoples on this very land. So you know, when you spoke of black and brown bodies and the history, the American history of that story, what has happened for centuries, it's necessary. So too is this recompense that you have created called the Museum of Black Joy so that no matter the hell and chaos that we know took place. I was so grateful to open, and you you spoke about the photography that opens it. I also love that just boisterous color of the collage that you have en- encased it in for our benefit uh, on the homepage of the website. And that was so phenomenally exciting to me. When we come back, here on The Janice Adams Show with our guest, Andrea Philly Walls, Philadelphia-based artist and poet. More about her art and the art of doing art after the break. Trying to make it real compared to what... We're back 
here on the Jana Adam Show with my guest, Andrea Philly-Wolfs, Philadelphia-based artist and photographer and poet. She has created the Museum of Black Joy right now, no matter where you are in the universe hearing this. Thank goodness she has made it available to us online. Andrea, as we were going to break, I was really struck by the way you have used an extraordinary experience from your life. And I wanted to talk to you about the art of doing art. How do you approach what you're going to do as an artist? And, and especially now that it's yielded something so, you know, really global, which, which is really exciting, you know, that, that it has manifested itself this way. We don't have to wait and hope whether or not it will come to our town. Yeah, I think um, I'm definitely deeply inspired by the artists of, we were speaking of Langston Hughes, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, and probably more particularly the artists of the Black arts movement, because these poets showed up in places where we were. They showed up at a community gathering. They showed up in the laundromat. They had a kind of guerrilla approach we're not accepted in the academy at this time. So we're going to show up with what we're doing and transform the space that we inhabit. And so that is really like the gift that I'm hoping. And, and I don't necessarily have the kind of personality that's going to show up and put on a performance at the laundromat. So I'm trying to use my my personality and my strengths to form a, a way of <clears throat> being in proximity to my audience. Because I, I think a lot of people don't feel comfortable in museums. Some can't afford them, certainly not to bring a, a whole family. Um, so I'm looking at ways to mobilize this work. So can I make uh, something on wheels that I could pull up to an elementary school? and have an impromptu. Um, I'm, I'm looking to put uh, some of the images on buses, you know, just to share the work that's not necessarily reliant on me being vivacious in public, but creating a proximity that has a more like an intimate approach to it um, that kind of serves my personality, but builds on the bequests that I feel I've been given by uh, artists like Sonia Sanchez, Antezaki Shange, Tony K. Bambara, Amiri Baraka. Um, these folks showed up, they were embedded in the community, they, they uh, became parts of the academy by their own efforts and force, but primarily they were artists who were available in the community and you didn't need to pass a test to have access to them. And you didn't need to pay a fee to have access to, and you know, everything I learned about black history and I went to an all black high school came from the poets dropping those crumbs between their poems. Now you all know you need to check out Charles Chestnut. Now you all need to know who Marcus Garvey is. Now you, all, so they always taught as they offered their art. And so that's, that's the model. And so I'm trying to figure out how to use my limited uh, resources in the most expansive way. You know, as I, raised the question about the art of doing art. It was because with the internet, there is such a drive to self-promotion. And there is such a, a me, me, me craving. Yeah, I, I can't even think of the phrase that I want to use. And it's not important. You get the picture of, of what I'm referring to. My question is, about the difference between that kind of intense self-promotion and generosity. So I have been the beneficiary of such generosity. Um, I hope folks will look at a featured artist page where I'm trying to expand that. From that featured artist page, here is vocalist, writer, choreographer, Charlene Griffith Oro performing her work, Composite. 
to the music of Janine Kayembe Oro. I think about whether I'm a copy. You know, a facsimile of things that have been. But I realize I'm a composite, a blur, and fragments, and repetitions. ever happened, all that might happen, everything that will never happen. at some of my inspirations, um, you'll see I um, uplift the work of the Black Joy Project, which is uh, a project that predates the Museum of Black Joy by several years. And there, are, I see a lot of, um, I see something called the Black Joy Parade out in Oakland. So a lot of people are doing this work. Um, you mentioned Langston Hughes, that, that intervention on the corner with the flowers. You know, there are people doing this everywhere. And, and I, I was actually had my project uh, held up by a collaborator, Muti, Muti Reed, who uh, is the one who put the project in front of the Enquirer, um, which kind of started the ball rolling for some press opportunities. They are uh, an artist um, who runs something called the House of Lux. And and so they're excuse me. So when you say held up, you don't mean held up in terms of time. You mean lifted, raised up, lifted up. Yes, yes. Thank <laughs> yeah. you. Raised up, raised yes. up. Uh, you know, share people sharing resources because there's you know there's not a lot of money happening, but there's a lot of resources available. Um, and you know, the abundance is deeply felt. And, and none of us do any of this alone. And so I, I want to thank you as well for creating opportunity um, to share to share the word and the work. And um, I, the reason I have a camera is because I was a participant in the Women's Mobile Museum, which was a project with um, uh, Tilt. Uh, they just changed their name. Institute for the Contemporary image and uh, the artist Sir Zanelli Maholi, um, who came from South Africa to work with some uh, untrained uh, artists who had an interest in media. They gave us a camera. And so, you know, that really, that was in 2018. So I had this tool and I had a feeling that I needed to have some evidence of this thing that I know to be, but I don't it feels unremarkable because no one's remarking on it, it, it which is not the same of as it's non-existent. And I felt like, yo, folks need to know every minute of our day is not steeped in tragedy by and large. But even if it is what you get through looking at these images and, and in the last couple of minutes, I just want you to talk, I'm going to kind of do a quick round robin of images, but even if it is, Black Joy seems like a form of resistance. In I, I'm looking at an image that I absolutely love and the, it, it is a, at a carnival and the neon lettering in the background is ring of fire. But what it is, is apparently um, a dad and a little girl, and he's holding a cup for her to simply drink from. And I love the little details that when your eye just looks at it very quickly, what I see on the gate is the word exit. Tell us about that photo quickly. You know, it's a, at the Christian Stronghold Baptist Church annual carnival that happens in a parking lot. 
and uh, it's transformed in the summer. And I love that image because you have the ring of fire with the with the flames, you know, uh, and behind it there are the three crosses that signify the church. So like you have the layers. So yeah, I just love all the layers in that image. You know, you have the ring of fire, you have the father quenching the daughter's thirst in a moment that feels so urgent. <laughs> you know, it feels like, oh, I, I, I'm so thirsty. I'm in front of this ring of fire. There's the three crosses in the back. There's the woman draped with the Muslim garb. Uh, so it feels like a very Philadelphia moment. There are a lot of different energies in the frame um, and we're out to celebrate uh, on a summer's night in all of our glory, thirst and uh, capacity to be quenched. And then there was another photo that I absolutely loved, which seems as though it's some kind of a, a parade. It might be the one that you have on Juneteenth. And you have the children who, excuse me, lined up for the parade. But I don't know if it's the same Muslim woman in, in full garb or not, but there is a child right in front of her, a little girl in, in Muslim garb, and then a little boy in his in his roadster car, <laughs> his, his little tiny roadster car. And it just says breakfast and lunch. And once again, it is that ordinary moment that's so powerful because we so rarely see these images of Black people. Right. And those of us who live there, we see it every day. And I'm like, I feel like I have to run, go tell. Like we're here. Um, in spite of everything else that's happening, we're making space for these young girls um, to, to have their chance to flourish. Um, and we're witnessing it. Uh, it's a completely different day, a different um, group of people. It is the Juneteenth um, celebration. And I'm really happy to say that that image um, is now part of the Equal Justice Initiative calendar that they put out every year. Um, so uh, it, it's, these are moments that give me joy. They, they are embedded in my memory from growing up and they still exist, but there's something in me that feels like we have to document them because it feels like with the crush of gentrification, some of these spaces are being contested. They may be gone. We need the, we need the archive. When last did you take a photo? Yesterday. What did you take? I took a... Well, what did you make? <laughs> yeah, thank you, because I, I do struggle with that, uh, that language. It was just a photo of a crossing guard, which is one of my favorite um, subjects, is to, to see the crossing guards usher the young people across the street through traffic. It, it's an intimate relationship. Uh, that can sometimes have a little bit of conflict, but, you know, in the way that, you know, your aunties and your, the grown women in your life will, you know, they will correct you <laughs> as needed and not always in the most delicate way, but with love. And they will always look out. Yes. Keep you safe. Black joy. Black joy. Thank you so much, Andrea Philly Walls founder and producer of this Museum of Black Joy, this online experience that we can all just enjoy at any moment because she has put it online. Thank you so much for being our guest today. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and to learn from you as well. And from you. Thank you, Andrea. My thanks to Andrea Philly Walls and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. Our thanks, too, to the artists heard on today's show. For links to their music, our guest, and this week's podcast, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rubio, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. And one more thing before we leave you. 
With the troubles overtaking the United States, turmoil the world over, we close today's show with the African-American spiritual Philly Walls named in her extraordinary answer to the question, what is black joy? She said, it's that thing that allows for the creation of a Negro spiritual, something that says, I am no ways tired when you know the singers of that song were bone tired. She said it's drawing on a history that they can't tell you, but they know it's in their lives, in their bones, and in their DNA. And in their singing is what allows them to continue forward on behalf of their own spirit, on behalf of the future, on behalf of generations. Black joy is a spiritual song that allows them and tells us to keep on keeping on to this very day and tomorrow. Black joy does not diminish the sorrow or the grief or the trauma. It's the life force that allows you to withstand those things and emerge triumphantly. Here's I'm No Ways Tired. No. 